Hi, my name is Martin Purnell, and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church, and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email ogc at accessradio.biz, business spot B-I-Z. Check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and we have our own website now, offgridchristianity.co.uk. So please enjoy today's guest, who after training for the ministry, spent his first two years in Bermuda with the Church of Scotland congregation before returning to the UK and taking charge as a minister in our broth in 1992. In 2006, his church became involved in community initiatives, especially Havala, or is it Havala? We'll find out soon. The church was recognised by winning a Queen's Award for voluntary services and they went on to support people who were struggling with mental health issues. However, whilst going back to his car, our guest fell awkwardly and no longer has the use of his left arm. After a ministry in one of Scotland's most deprived areas, he's now in charge of finding a new generation of leaders. He has chaired the Church Without Walls Committee and was the moderator of the General Assembly from May 20 to 21, which will be remembered for COVID, although I don't think we can blame our guests for that. What is the Church Without Walls Ministry? What is Havala or Havala? What does a moderator do? How is he coping with the use of only one arm? How do you support people in the community with mental health issues? It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Off Grid Christianity, Martin Fair. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. Where are we speaking to you from, good sir? Great to speak to you, Martin. Uh, I'm in Carnoustie, which is on the east coast of Scotland, a little up from Dundee and south of Aberdeen if folks are able to use their imaginations and picture it. It's a lovely part of the world, but goodness, even the, the winds coming off the East Coast, you better be well wrapped up. There's a few of us going Carnoustie or oh, golf, and that's it. <laughs> well, take out the golf, and there's not a whole lot here, but golf is a, a jewel in the crown. It really yeah. is a beautiful piece of classic Lynx golf territory. Yeah, yeah. And our broth? How far are you from our broth? Yeah, just six or eight miles up the road. I spent 31 years, as you said in your introduction, I was a minister there. Really heartbreaking to leave, yeah. uh, as it did in the March of this year. But it sensed it was the right thing and the right time, and so more of which later, I'm sure, but nearby our broth. Well, we look forward to hearing what you have to share as well later on. And, uh, of course, our broth, I actually think of our broth smokies, but there we go. Well, there's our broth smokies for sure, but also the Arbroath Football Club has yes. the world record score, 36 nothing, uh, the world record uh, score in a senior match. And so there's a wee, a wee feather in the cap for the local team. When was that? Oh, 18-something. <laughs> <laughs> we played a team that was called Bon Accord, which really became Aberdeen, I suppose. But uh, it was a while back, and uh, I think the referee maybe lost count somewhere along the way. It was actually 3-0, but, you know. Yeah. Well, I never knew that statistic. Thank you for sharing that. Brilliant. But before we find out more about yourself and our broth and everything else, Question number one, good sir. Mm. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, Martin, who would it be? I'm a great music fan. And if I was to pick out one band that has been with me through just about all of my life, certainly since my teenage years, then it's the Irish band, U2. Oh, really? Loved them from the moment I heard them and still continue to enjoy their music and appreciate what they bring. 
So I think I'd want to sit down with Bono. Excellent. And what would you ask him, St Bono of Dublin? I'm sure we'd cover a lot of ground and, and not least the music, but I'd really want to dig into faith. And of course, I've never been shy of faith, mm. uh, but I'd want to know what it means to him personally. Uh, so I think we'd be talking about our Christian faith that we share together. And I'm sure I'd be wanting to talk to him. What is Jesus to him? Well, when you do, because I think you're only about the third person that's actually chosen Bono or you 2 okay. out of all these that I've done. Can you ask him, please, why for the October tour in 1981, Bristol Locarno Ballroom, I was there to about 1,200 people, uh, including Encore, they were on stage for 45 minutes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Bono. I paid good money then to Short see you. Changed. Yeah. I was at that tour as well in a ballroom called Tiffany's in Sockyall Street in Glasgow, and I don't remember it being so short. Maybe we were a, a better crowd and gave them a better response, and we got double the time that you guys did. I've got a feeling that it might have been due to timings, because sometimes I'm pretty sure their gig was on a Sunday night. Mm. Maybe the, you know, half past ten they had to come off or something like that. Could be wrong. <laughs> I'll ask them. Yes, please do. But then you can also tell him that the water that they then did the following year, yep. wow, they were on station like nearly two hours in the old Colston yeah. Hall in Bristol. What a gig that was. Nice. Good answer. Thank you. I can see we're going to get on well here. Golf, you too. <laughs> see where we go from. For question two, who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, please, Martin? I think this answer might change through my life. But at the moment, my favourite biblical character is Nehemiah. When he became aware of the devastation that, well, that had befallen his hometown, so to speak, mm. in Jerusalem, and that when news came to him that the city of Jerusalem still lay in ruins, you know, his heart was broken and he, he longed for something more. He longed for restoration and that God would be glorified again in that place. And so he has this vision to rebuild. Now, if you look at the church across much of the Western world, certainly across much of Europe and including my own homeland of Scotland, uh, we are crying out for restoration. So Nehemiah is an inspiration to me at the moment. And I think if, if you give me a chance to sit down for dinner with him too, then that would be a great opportunity to chat and learn from him. Nehemiah. Good answer. Thank you. Question three. If you were Prime Minister for the day and could change any law or impose new law, what would it be, Martin? Again, you might get a different answer on different <laughs> days, but I'm very, very conscious of the question of immigration right mm -hmm. now. And that's turned into a real political hot potato, hasn't it? And it's been very divisive. And of course, some leaning in one direction, really wanting to close the borders, others taking a quite different view. But for me, this is a topic that Christians have to sort of depoliticize from and go to scriptures. And there's much in scripture, not least in, in the Old Testament, talking about how we should treat people uh, and not least those who are quote unquote foreigners amongst us. So I would want to be doing something by way of legislation that gives dignity to people and treats people um, as as they deserve as, as human beings made in the image of God, just like we are. Yeah. All I can say is I'm glad I'm not a politician. Oh, me too. Yeah. Question four. Outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out? Yeah, well, let's go back to golf. <laughs> it's either that or football. Uh, I don't know if you want to get down that road. That, talking of divisiveness, oh. that might take us into other places. But I'm a Bristol City fan, so divisiveness, <laughs> well, I, where the word is, away. Go for it. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I was born and raised in the south side of Glasgow and uh, nearest to Ibrox, home of Glasgow Rangers. So that's my, my, been my team all my life. What, Partick Thistle? <laughs> yes, that's the other the <laughs> other Glasgow team. Uh, but between following following Rangers, uh, I'm a big fan of the Scottish national team and uh, and I'm going to be going to Germany next year to, to watch them at the Euros. And I've, I've been abroad with Scotland before and, you know, as my boys grew up and they became football fans, there was no greater fun as a dad than going to the matches with my boys and watching them become seasoned uh, Scotland fans. That is, having the hope and the despair in equal measure all in the course of 90 minutes. So probably at the football is where some of my best fun's been through the years. Oh, I can say amen to that. Mm. I've had the privilege of being to two World Cups and uh, one Euros, the whole of the Euro 96. I was there when Gaz Goyne scored that goal against, I can't remember who it was now, who was it against? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Moving swiftly along. <laughs> uh, my first son was born in the days leading up to that match when Scotland played Switzerland at Villa Park. Mm-hmm. And Ali McCoy scored the winning goal that night. And uh, within an hour or two, my first son was born. And uh, so all of those things kind of, you know, linked together in your head. Talk about Euro 96. I'm thinking about our boy Callum being born. Uh, well, I was at the far end when McCaster took that penalty, which was yep. just two minutes before Mr. Gascoigne scored that goal. Correct. And even I could see the ball move. <laughs> yeah. You could just see the ball move slightly sideways as McCaster was running up. <laughs> Happy days. It was. It was. I think we won that day. <laughs> Question five. What has been your most embarrassing moment to date, please, Martin? Well, there's a lot. And one thing that I think I've learned in life is being able to laugh at myself. So I tend not to get embarrassed too much, but there was an occasion a couple of years back when my wife and I were invited to a party of good friends. And uh, somehow or another, I got it in my head that it was a dress-up party. (laughs) And so I turned up uh, as a kind of of Johnny Rotten figure, a kind of punk from the 1970s. I dyed my hair, I was in ripped jeans and t-shirts and chains and everything <laughs> like that. And of course we walked in and uh, there wasn't another single person dressed up. They were just all in their normal gear. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But what we were going to do, and we were there, we were going to stay for the party. But the funny thing was there was a woman who was there who saw me coming in and got a dreadful fright. She thought saw this, you know, horrific looking character and she immediately ran to the, the host of the party and Tim, my friend Tim, he said, is this guy coming? Is this guy coming? And so Tim comes in, looks me up and down and says, oh, that's just Martin. That's our minister. <laughs> so it was funny, but it was embarrassing all in equal measure. But, you know, you look back with a smile at everything yeah. that happens. You raise a good point here. How many times do we judge somebody on how they dress? Mm-hmm. You know, because yep. there must be loads of people who, because they identify with the punk movement, you know, as I yeah. do. Yeah, That's my kind of music. That's what brought me into the, the big music scene. Yeah. To sort of be scared of a punk walking along the road. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I had that happen to me once. I remember just walking down a street and a, a kind of middle aged woman crossed the road. And, and I happened to meet her later and get to know her. And she recounted the scene and she said she was terrified. She saw me coming, didn't know me at that time, and just crossed the road. Images. And, you know, it also takes me back, Martin. My first ever time I was asked to preach a sermon, I was still only young, maybe 16, 17 in my church. The title of my first ever sermon was Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover. Yeah. Because, I mean, in that time of my life, punk was what fired me up. And uh, 
all this, this, you know, the let me call it the uniform that went with it. Yes. So it was very real to me, all of that business you've just been describing about how we take people so often at face value. How far are you from Dunfermline, as a matter of interest? I'm there within an hour. Okay. Because one of the great bands from Scotland came out of Dunfermline. The Skids. Absolutely right. Yeah. Jobson and, uh, and Adamson, of course, what a great band. If MD doesn't know the song Into the Valley, <sighs> go and just put the beginning on. Isn't that one of the best introductions to a song you'll ever hear? I've told the story before, but it's, I think it's worth telling again. I thought I knew all the words all the way through, and I was on a, a holiday over the Christmas period, as you do as a single Christian. You go on a note call holiday, skiing holiday, and in, in the coach on the way back to the airport, chap I was sitting next to, he was the number one fan for the skids. And I said, you know, this obviously it's halfway through. I've never to this day understood what Jobson was singing about. What does he mean by saying more than a slow go? And he says, no, it's boy, man and soldier. I always thought he said more than a slow go. Well, for all I love the skids, the singing wasn't that clear, was it? There was lots of the lyrics you just hadn't a clue. In fact, was it TDK Tapes? They actually did a, a Mickey take of it, didn't they? You know the classic Bob Dylan video? Uh, for Subterranean yes. Homesick Blues. Yeah, with the cards. Yeah, They did something similar, I think. Peter Kay has some great fun with misheard lyrics. Uh, we went to see Peter Kay in concert earlier this year, and it was so much fun, but he did this thing with misheard lyrics. And yes, he does. He had the entire venue in stitches. Peter Kay's an interesting thing, and then we'll move on, because he doesn't really swear a lot on stage, does he? Or did he then? No, he didn't. I think he just comes across as a really nice guy. A, a sort of ordinary guy. I mean, I'm only based on what I've seen yeah. on telly and that time in concert, but he comes across as a decent bloke. Well, talking of misheard lyrics, maybe misheard words here, I said Havala or Havala. Yeah. What is it? I think if you say either with confidence, you'll get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> We've always gone with Havala. And, uh, of course, it's a wee bit cryptic, which always gave us opportunity to, to give an answer because people would say, what's Havala? And of course, the word appears in the very early chapters of the book of Genesis. There's a description of Eden. Mm -hmm. And and into that description comes the word Havilah. And when you drill down a wee bit, it says it's a place where treasure of great worth is found. Now, Martin, this came out of a ministry, a program that my church congregation launched. And it was looking to support those who were excluded and very much on the margins of our society. Mm -hmm. People who were really left out for whatever reason. And our sense was that that we needed to include. And so this project began, and as we were trying to find a name for it, the leaders, the, the visionaries, they just thought, right, we're going to find a word in the Bible. So I'm glad it was Genesis and not Revelation, or it might have taken them their whole lives to get there. <laughs> but they came across this idea, Havilah, a place where treasure of great worth is found. And they saw that in these folks who's, you know, who, who then started to come to our project, many with addiction problems and all sorts, the kind of people who are written off yes. and looked down on by almost everybody. And yet we believed that God sees such people, and to use something I said earlier, sees someone made in his own image, someone precious and of great value. So it seemed right to us. And every time someone said, what does Havilah mean? We got opportunity to talk about that verse in, in Genesis at the beginning of the Bible. It's interesting because I read somewhere, or in fact, I think someone told me about you, and they said uh, he comes from an area that's really deprived. Mm. So the fact you've been able to do these initiatives Describe what your your area is like, please. 
traditionally it would be a fishing a fishing town mm-hmm. set on the east coast of Scotland. But then as most people would know, the fishing industry, you know, went through really tough times. And so there's really nothing there now by way of deep sea fishing. Uh, you'll get small boats uh, in inner waters picking up lobsters and such like. And you still get fish processing of the famous Arbroath Smoky. But with the demise of the fishing industry and approximately the same time of heavy industry and weaving and such like, Arbroath was really ravaged economically speaking. And when that happens, just watch how social problems you know, come in the back of that. So on one level, you come and it's got a lovely harbour area set along some beautiful coastline. But drill down a bit, and it was a town that had really, has really had its hard times. And that would still continue to be the case. There's not much there by way of significant employment. Many people have to leave or go elsewhere. So although it's not clearly on the same scale population-wise as some of the big cities and Mm. the deprivation that you'll find in, in Glasgow, for example, we've got on a smaller scale all the same problems. And for us, Martin, in terms of a Christian congregation, we could either just stay in our church on a Sunday morning and sing hymns and have a, you know, have that wonderful time together, or become a congregation that got involved in the community and began to try and address some of the needs in the community. And all of that spiraling out of our faith yeah. about God giving his son for this world and, and not to judge it, but to save it. And so take out the judgment, begin to see the needs in people and and the compassion of Christ that comes into play at that point. And that's where our church began to connect you know, with our community. I became a Christian reluctantly, as I tell us <laughs> every week, in 1987. Mm-hmm. And it was either just before or just after that I became a Christian. I, I went to the Colston Hall in Bristol for a night, and it was called the Dirty Hands Tour. And it was basically saying, look, it's one thing to be a Christian, but you need to get your hands dirty. So yep. all these years on, I'm meeting somebody here tonight, who's got his hands dirty. For those that are saying, well, that sounds very good, but tell us more, please. How did you start and how did you get your church involved to, to get their hands dirty for the local area, the community? I think the first part of my ministry, Martin, my sense was that my job, my role as minister was to build up the church. Mm-hmm. And we did. It grew numerically. It grew in all the kind of measures that you might use to assess the health or otherwise of a church. But there came a certain point where there was a question began to nag away inwardly for me. And it was, well, what's the point? You've built up the church, but for what? You know, to what end? And that's when the realisation began to dawn on me all the more that God has a church for the world. In other words, that, you know, for for the healing and for the redeeming of brokenness, which is God's mission plan, you know, for, for the world. And yet, Miraculously, uh, he chooses to use his church and you know his people to do that. And so we began to look beyond the walls. You mentioned in the build-up again, church without walls. Mm. And there's the principle right there that church isn't what happens inside on a Sunday morning. It's what happens when the minister pronounces the blessing at the end of the service and sends the people out into the community, into the world. So we began to talk that language. We began to point to the needs in our community and inspire people that this wasn't optional. If we were to be faithful Christians, it was required of us that we take seriously and that we begin to ask, well, where would Jesus be? And if you go back to the gospel, 
you see him hanging out, for example, with the, to quote unquote, the sinners, the tax collectors and the lepers mm. who were excluded by everyone else, who weren't even allowed to come near. And we began to think, well, well, who are these lepers in our community? We had a very significant drug problem at that time. Heroin misuse was absolutely rife. And if you were looking for modern day lepers, then they were right there. And so out of that kind of understanding of scripture and that conviction that we sense from God, uh, we got involved. And just little by little, we turned our church inside out so that its focus was beyond the walls. And we measured the health of our church, not by how many people came to it, but by how many people we sent out from it to make a difference on the streets of our town and further afield. And it, you know, it began to happen. It really did. And over the 17 years that the Havala project has been running, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and more people have come over the doors, desperate people, broken people, lonely people, and they've all found compassion. And they've all found that non-judgmental approach that we offer. And many have been redeemed, found themselves clean, free from addiction, on our road to recovery. And, you know, many rejoice in that, as do we. Wow. Okay. So let's unpack it even more, if that's okay. Sure. When did you turn up at that church and describe how many people were in church at the time when you first rolled up? Yeah, it was January 1992. Okay. So the dark ages, as some might say, or the, you know, it seems like another world altogether. Let me tell you what happened on my first Sunday. I mean, your listeners might might just be grabbed by this moment. Uh, a man had come through to the vestry where the minister waits before 11 o'clock, before the service starts. And he just came through to wish me well. I mean, I'd just been ordained as their new minister and nice enough of him, he came through to wish me well on my first Sunday and to say how grateful they were and how pleased they were I'd come and et cetera, et cetera. So he stretches out his hand to just wish me well. Mm. And without a word of a lie, as he stretched his hand out, he collapsed and died on the floor of a massive heart attack. So there was no mouth to mouth, no ambulances. I mean, they came eventually, yeah. but it was it was done and dusted. He died instantly. So my very first Sunday as a minister, I'm in the, the green room, if I can use that language, yeah. just waiting to go into church five minutes before church starts. And I have a dead body lying in front of me. That's not made up story. That's what happened. And I went into church from there after. And I remember my wife and I talking afterwards and thinking, you know, if I can get through today, then I think probably I'm going to be able to cope with most things that come. That's for sure. Wow. What a day to remember. Because most people say that the church would have just stopped the service. You wouldn't have carried on or something. Well, I mean, it was before internet. We didn't even have a phone in the church. There yeah. was a baptism arranged for that day. And of course, no one in the church knew what was happening. This was just behind the scenes. So our session clerk, who was the lead elder at the time, his thought was that, this, you know, we had to go on with the service. And of course, I was new and in somewhat of a state, having just witnessed what yeah. happened. And, you know, we went along with it. And um, of course, a funeral came in due course and everything else. And and the widow of the man who died was still in the church to this day. And her and me had a very special bond because of that. My yes. first Sunday and the Sunday she she lost her husband. So, yeah, lots to think back on. But, you know, it was a it was a good church when I showed up, Martin. But you might say maybe it had just gone to sleep a little bit. 
Yes. And so what it needed was, I think, someone to come in with just some fresh vision. And of course, my being somewhat young at the time, there was a sort of youthful energy and enthusiasm about it. But it didn't take a great deal just to get the thing moving again uh, and to begin to energise people and get people sitting up in the edges of the seats again. And so just little by little, the church began to grow. And these were exciting days. So in 1992, if we came in with a head count for you on your first Sunday, how many would have been there? I think the sort of average turnout in those days would have been about 150 or thereabouts. Okay. And I think we, pre-COVID and all of that, I think we were topping about 300, which in today's you know way of things would be quite respectable i think you would say that very much so but then like all churches you know recent years have been really difficult would i be right in saying that you obviously want were brought in with a fresh approach and the church embraced this idea of havala to take it on mm. would i be right in saying that there might have been people within the congregation who didn't want that to take place at all what happened i think there was not so much resistance as just people not not knowing what to make of it to mm. be honest because if we're quite honest Churches as a whole are sort of probably marked by a kind of middle class respectability. Now, that might be true even if they're not necessarily middle class areas. But you know what I mean? There's a kind of respectability and that would come from former days when people would put on their Sunday best and so on. And that's what you were known for. And, and, you know, the bank manager would be a member of the of the church and, you know, the captain of the golf club and, and so on and so on. So. That was part of the deal, I think. So it was, people weren't sure what to make of it when some of these people who were still in addiction began to come to church. But I have to say that in the main, folks were really open. They didn't necessarily get it, yeah. but to begin with, but they did. And no one was ever turned away. No one was ever shunned. And I think we all we all learned a lesson. You know, when you begin to hear the stories of people, Martin, some of the ones who were coming to us with horrific tales to tell and something of the background of what led to them Mm. falling into troubled times and and deep into addiction and everything that goes with that. When you begin to hear some of these stories, you cannot but end up saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Now, I don't know about you, but I had a very stable upbringing. Mm-hmm. You know, my mum and dad were great. Uh, we had everything really we could have wanted and by way of upbringing and so on. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I could introduce you to lots of people who had the very opposite case. So how can I stand in judgment of people? I can only say that I'm thankful and blessed, but I can't judge. And so I guess that spirit began to really infuse the congregation in such a way that people say, yeah, okay. We weren't used to this in days gone by, but this is what God is doing among us, and let's embrace it. Okay, so you realise there's a a problem. We're very good as humans to know there's a problem. It's a question of how you're going to fix it. So how did you, in your little community of Arbroath, by the sea, with an Arbroath smoky for lunch, which is smoked fish, basically, isn't it? Yep, exactly. I always get this wrong, which fish it is. I want to say haddock. It's always between the kipper, isn't it? Yeah. You know, which is one and the smoky, which is the other. But look, whisper this. I'm not a fan of smoked fish. <laughs> so although I lived there for 31 years and it's a local delicacy, <laughs> I avoided it. So apart from then going yeah. out and sort of saying, right, we'll catch fish and, and sell them and hopefully people come along. In all seriousness, what did you yeah. do to address this problem? 
within the town? The reality of it is that we had no clue. We really had no clue. There was no expertise. There was just a vision, a sense that God was calling us to something more than what I described as middle-class respectability, mm. even something more than a church that was strong and thriving. And, you know, you could have come along and enjoyed our worship. I mean, it was vibrant, but still there was a sense that God was calling us to more, but with no expertise. And so really the vision grew up from a number of members of the church who just had this conviction that there are people in our community who are completely excluded, whose needs are great. What are we doing about that? So with not a clue, really, we just opened our premises. And that was in the August of 2006. It was a Monday. I suppose naively, the volunteers just thought, well, people are going to rock up. You know, we'll put posters out. We'll put flyers out there. People will see that and they'll come along. What was written on, what was written on the flyer? I think it was saying something like, if you're lonely, if you're looking for company and friendship, um, that, you know, this yeah. kind of thing, then just show up and we'll be here. Well, reality check, nobody came the first day and nobody came the next day either. So I could spend long enough, but I need to fast forward this story. Essentially, for a year, nobody came. Really? Now, truth be told, if I'd been in charge of that particular project, by that time, I might have said, you know, guys, it was a great idea, but it's clearly not working. But those whose vision it definitely was, they would not give up because they really sensed that God had called them to it. So for a year, they showed up to begin with just once a week and then three days a week. They had coffee ready, they had a toaster ready and just ready to welcome people in. And essentially nobody came. Mm -hmm. Then after a year, the first guy rocked up. He, as it turned out, was a long-term heroin addict. Now, when the flyers and posters went out, we didn't know who was going to show up. And we certainly had no training, no expertise in the question of drugs or anything like that. But that was the first guy that showed up. Uh, and in time, he, we were able to get him into rehab. He got himself clean. And that was the start. A little trickle became a stream. And a stream became a river. And after that, we didn't need to advertise because, if you like, the underworld you know, began to sort of, uh, you know, the, the word was around and People just came to us in large numbers, all of them in need. And at that point, the volunteer team, uh, you know, they did begin to get clued up. They did begin to understand and learn and do training and all of those things. And it started off one day a week with a few volunteers to becoming with several staff members, a standalone building and premises open every day of the week. It became a full-on project and, uh, and all from very, very humblest of beginnings. Now. None of that's to say that the entire drug problem in our community was, you know, was sorted, but you make inroads into it. And, you know, the worst thing you can ever do is say, oh, we'll do nothing because we can't do everything. Mm -hmm. If you can make a difference in one person's life, watch how that ripples out to their family, to their community. You see, if somebody is, has got themselves clean from drugs, then watch how the petty crime in the area begins to decline. Watch how you know, less people are going to prison and so on. So it's never necessarily been about an idealistic sense. We can sort it, but boy, we can make a difference. By the grace of God, we can make a difference. And I think looking back, we did. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the, the T word, training, mm. because you know it's all very well having the premises to open up the doors and 
eventually year on fair play fair kudos you know for you to yeah. carry on doing that but for the first person to come in and that person admits he's a heroin addict yeah i wouldn't know what to do no so where did you get the training from well to begin with um, i mean all we had to offer was I, I mentioned these words earlier all we had to offer was you know was love and, and yeah. it sounds kind of almost cheesy to say it but well at the end of the day that's still what we've got to offer although our staff and volunteers are, are trained now. They get it. To begin with, there was nothing to offer but open arms, compassion, a willingness to listen, not to judge, and to love. But thereafter, when we realised, you know, this is becoming a serious business, then, you know, we would go to the local authority. They would point us in the direction of the relevant training. Because I guess we were really naive to begin with, and we believed every story that was told us. But you have to wise up. You have to wise up. If you're dealing with, you know, with this community, it's often desperate people that have learned to lie and steal and cheat just to get by. I'm not saying that judgmentally. I'm just saying that's the reality when your only thing is your fix for the day. So they bring that with them. And uh, and my team had to really begin to wise up, which they did that without losing the compassion, without using the love. But the training just built up and built up how, for example, to de-escalate, you know, potential confrontation and even how to administer adrenaline jags if someone had OD'd and things like that. So very ordinary, regular folk in my congregation learned all of that sort of stuff so that the project could deliver, you know, all that the potential was there for. And how long was it before the church, I would have thought, became a byword for, look at what they're doing, this is fantastic. So how long Hmm. was it before hey, you really were rocking and rolling and doing an amazing thing. I'm not sure I can put an exact time on it. Probably in the sort of three to four to five years, Mm -hmm. we began to be noticed. Now, I think to begin with, and and I don't discredit them for that, they were probably wise. I think our local authority was very suspicious. They thought we'd probably just be do-gooders, proselytizers, only interested in getting people to fill our pews on a Sunday morning. But when they began to realise there was more to it than that. Then they came alongside, uh, and the local authority became our, you know, one of our chief funders, and they did that without asking us to compromise, you know, our, you know, our Christian belief, our our Christian faith. And then, you know, interesting stuff began to happen. That the local sheriff in our town, in the sheriff court, not somebody who necessarily you'd find in church on a Sunday morning, but mm. he got wind of what we were doing. He came to visit. You know, he realised that it was a massive problem and he wasn't able to fix it. He was sending people for short-term custodial sentences and he knew the minute they were out again, they'd be right back to where they started. So he actually started saying to people who were coming to him in the court, uh, in the dock, right, I'll not send you down this time if, on condition, you go to the Havala project. Wow. So when the judicial system is taking notice, you know, that's good news. The local police used to hang out on the understanding was that they would not come in and how can I put it? They would see somebody maybe perhaps that they knew had a bit of a misdemeanor against them. Yes. They didn't do anything in the place. They just built up relationships. That was helpful. And then, you know, our MSP through much of that time, a guy I got on tremendously well with, though, who would have no truck with Christian faith. He would happily describe himself as an atheist mm-hmm. and yet he too saw the value in it and was a supporter of what we were doing so yeah little by little it got attention there would still be some people out there who would say 
all leading to rot. You know, these people have mm. you know made their own problems. Leading to why are you bothering about them? But that's where the Christian ethos of the project had to kick in. We did not believe that that's what Jesus would do, uh, and so for us, the door was open to everybody and anybody. So, what did you do then? You've got people coming in, and it's like yeah. it's all going well. They they can see that something's happening, but eventually, yeah. you want to turn back. Jesus is love. So, what happened? We always left it in the hands of those who came in the door. So nobody was given any conditions to come in. You didn't say, right, you got to read your Bible and then you can come in or anything like that. And even when people sat down to begin with, we did not have a, you know, a, a pre-prepared uh, package to sort of uh, lay on them. But do you know, Martin, when people start getting treated, and again, I'll come back to these words with compassion, yes. without judgment, and with a love that they were not experiencing anywhere else in their lives, after a period of time, one after another, they would ask us, why are you folks being so kind to us? Everyone else treats us like something they stood on by mistake on the pavement. But you, you welcome us in. You treat us like your sons and daughters. Why is that? And there you go. There's your opportunity and there's your moment. And we would say to people very clearly, unapologetically, because we believe that you are a son, a daughter of God who made you, God who loves you, God who sent his son for you. And, you know, to begin with, some of them would sort of laugh that off and say, oh, don't give me this religious stuff. Yeah. But, you know, a couple of weeks later, they'd come back and say, going to tell me a wee bit more about that. And there was an openness. I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of people who came in were really ready to explore. And many found faith. Not everyone. And that's okay. But even I see some people around today who didn't come into what we would call a full-on living faith, but did get themselves clean, did get into healthy relationships, got themselves into work and so on. And I still see some of these people around and say, hey, they'll say hello and come over and chat and things. And I just love seeing them on a better path. But within that, quite a number, a good number who found faith and went on to lead projects of their own and, um, and do all sorts of amazing things their sense was that they had been so richly blessed and that in their being saved from the gutter, as it were, they just felt they had to give something back. And so I guess that's one of the great joys of it when you see people going on and themselves now investing their lives. Yeah. I've said many a time on these podcasts about Francis of Assisi before he became St. Francis of Assisi. You know, yeah. And the classic quote of his, uh, go out and preach good news to a generation, and if all else fails, use words. And this yeah. is what you're doing, isn't it? This is the dirty hands. You're getting your hands dirty for Christ. I think it is that, you know, one one of the, the scenes, if I can put it that way, that is really seared across my my memory. One particular chap came into the project one day and he was he was out of it. And whatever he'd been taking, who knows, but there was Valium involved and all kinds of other illicit substances. And he, he came in just as a wreck that day. Martin, it's almost hard for me to describe, but he was a wretched human being, broken in every sense. And uh, I mean, without too much graphic detail, I mean, his nose had been running. I mean, he just looked a complete mess, the kind of person that you would want to keep at arm's length and further. And yet the leader of our project just walked over to him, saw him and just took him into her embrace. Actually, she was taller than him. And she just took him in and sort of enfolded him into her 
embrace, you know, it's hard for me to find yeah. the words, but, you know, face first, as it were, without, you know, without, first of all, saying to him, you'll need to go and, you know, here's a hanky, you know, go and get yourself cleaned up. There was none of that. She just embraced him. And I remember watching that happening and thought, this is it. This is it. This is Christ's likeness right in front of my very eyes. Two things. Yep. Firstly, the gentleman who died minutes before your first service. Yeah. It could be like the Joseph of Arimathea moment, you know, where mm. he goes there knowing he's going to see the Messiah. There's that. And then yep. a few years on from that tragic day, you've got this person coming in who yeah. is at the end of his tether yep. and you just show love. Wow. It's inspiring, and I know it's a wee bit of a cliche to say this, but it's not rocket science. It really isn't. And uh, We make it rocket science, though. I think we do, but we were just ordinary folk. It wasn't some particularly amazing church. It was just a, a good, yes, it was a healthy congregation, but just very ordinary folk. Yeah. But when there's vision there and when there's a genuine desire to, to live as Christ would have us live, then just watch what can happen. But when that love spills out from the church and you know becomes the mark of the church, then it's, it just has to make a difference. When did you get the Queen's Award for voluntary services? Gosh, I am going to guess about 2014 or thereabouts. We were nominated by the MSP. and for those who don't know the MSP, MSP stands for? A member of the Scottish Parliament as opposed to uh, MP Westminster. And at that time, before our present MSP, he was a big supporter of the work we did and he saw it for himself. And the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service is the equivalent of an OBE or an MBE, which might be given to an individual. The Queen's Award is given to an organisation. And so it was a real affirmation. Nobody was ever doing it for praise or recognition or anything like that. But Gosh, it was nice for the volunteers to think that, wow, you know, we're recognised in this way. And um, of course, it, you know, wouldn't have stopped doing it without that. But it's just, isn't it nice? Just a wee sort of pat in the back every so often. Who presented the award to you? It was the Lord Lieutenant of the, the County of Angus who came along. In other words, the Queen's representative in our local area. But those who had the vision and started the project, they were invited down to... Buckingham Palace and, you know, one of those official events. I think it was, was it Charles who they met or the Queen herself? I, I don't remember. That's a wee while back. You didn't go yourself then? No. Do you know, some of the best stuff that happened in, you know, in our church through the years wasn't really mine. My role as a minister, Martin, was to create space and to encourage people, but then to give them the freedom to begin to express the ministries that they had and that they were sensed, you know, that... They were called to. So I would look at the likes of Havilands. Not my idea. It bubbled up from the folk and there are various other things. I mean, we started a food bank long before MD had heard of food banks. Mm. wasn't my idea. It bubbled up. So I think the role of the minister is to create a positive environment where people get permission to try stuff and for themselves to sense you know, what's God saying in this situation and for the minister almost to get out of the way and, you know, and to create a space where stuff can begin to happen. So really, I don't personally take the credit for Havala. It lies with others. So when it comes to like going to Buckingham Palace, it definitely was not about me. 
It was about those who had who had, had the vision and who made it happen. Wow. I think you'll wonder for very few ministers from what we hear and see these days, you know, they would be clamoring for it. That's my job, that's my job. You're saying you're talking my language from my old my old job outside of Christian yep. ministry. Facilitation. You were the facilitator. Yes. You saw what yeah. was going on and you decided yep. to do something about it. But that the other people with you hovering over, making sure they're yeah. okay. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Without that, the minister just becomes a bottleneck. I mean, if everything's got to be rooted through and depends on the minister, then you're limited by, you know, by the potential of that one person and, and their, you know, days in a week that they've got available to them. But yeah. when a minister is, is in the business of equipping others and freeing others up and everybody comes to understand that they're called to ministry in one form or another, then you turn from a sort of one person army into you know something something that's really got all sorts of potential i really like to use the last 10 15 minutes if that's okay to mm. encourage those that are listening today because no offense to the people living in our broth but if you can do it in our broth you can do it anywhere so yeah. mental health issues you look at that as well yeah what do you do about that well again there was a, a growing sense probably in the sort of 2015, 16, going on from that. I mean, mental health's not new. I mean, you could go right back to Old Testament times. You know, you could say somebody like Job, or, or at times the Psalmist. You could have said, you know, you know, it could have applied to them. And one of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 88 or thereabouts. There's a harrowing line at the end of that Psalm where it says, "Darkness is my only friend." Now, if that's not a picture of you know somebody with poor mental health, depression, then I'm not sure what is. So it's not new, but long before we'd heard about the pandemic of COVID, to me, there was a pandemic of poor mental health. Now, Scotland has by far and away the worst suicide stats across the UK and more widely. I mean, really bad, not just on a par with much worse. And to top that off between, you know, young men, sort of between maybe 18, 40 or something like that. I think it's the biggest cause of death to under 30s, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, I mean, that's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. So I just became more and more aware of it because, you know, I was finding myself conducting funerals where, yeah, often was young guys taking their own lives and you just kind of can't keep ignoring it. And you either just keep up picking up the pieces or you began to say, can we go upstream and began to see if somehow we can address some of the causes in the first place. So we got a whole bunch of people in our congregation we got them trained up by SAMH, which is the Scottish Association of Mental Health Organisations. They do fantastic work. So I think there's about 40 people in the church all did this training on sort of mental health first aid, you know, yes. how one would start. Not experts, anything like that, but how one would start. And the message that came through, Martin, again and again was, listen. You know, that's what the training was saying, listen. So often someone just needs someone who cares and cares enough to listen properly. So we kind of got that going. And then again, pre-COVID and COVID came along and made things so very difficult. But pre-COVID, we started off a garden uh, and there's good evidence to, to suggest that for people struggling, sometimes come back to your phrase, getting your hands dirty, yes. literally in the earth is therapeutic and is good. And we started a choir, a community choir, not for, you know, expert singers could read music, just people who would benefit from coming together into a group and, and just singing. 
I mean, again, the evidence is there to suggest that singing with others is just good for you. And I would go further and say good for the soul. Yes. So we began these kind of activities. Now, unfortunately, then COVID comes along and suddenly you can't meet, you can't do all those kind of things. So it's again, it's about picking these things up and seeing where it goes next. But that is the vision just to say, how can we stop to be really blunt about it, conducting funerals for those who have got to that terrible place? And how can we begin to meet people where they are? And so again, it comes back to the compassion, doesn't it? It just flows uh, through Christ into his people. That's the bottom line. Okay. This is your soapbox moment then, where Mm. imagine we've got people throughout the world listening. If they're in a church, I'd like you to, in the remaining time, if that's okay, encourage them, like I'm trying to go and get your hands dirty. Yeah. What would you say to them? Well, the first thing is that it has to be relevant to your community, wherever you are, if you are in the United States or somewhere across the United Kingdom or wherever. Look around, look around. I mean, it's possible, I'm going to say unlikely, but it's possible that maybe drug misuse is not a problem in your community. Well, you don't have to replicate what we're doing. You have to look outside the walls of your church. You have to get to know your community and not just on a shallow level, but really get to know what's going on. You might say, well, we don't have a mental health problem. I say you're not looking hard enough. It's there. It may just not be exhibiting, but Mm -hmm. it is there. But it may be other things. I mean, somewhere else there might be great race issues, for example. Not a problem in, in our small community, really very few people from other ethnic backgrounds. But what about your community? Where are the issues and what are they? And then it's that prayerful discerning. Lord, how would you have us serve? Because no one congregation can fix everything on their own, in their own strength. So we begin to say, Lord, where would you have us serve? And thereafter, take some small steps. You don't change everything overnight. Take some small steps and look for some small wins. Our Havala project, which became everything it did, started with one morning a week, four volunteers, a kettle, and a toaster, and a loaf of bread. And that was it. Small steps. But you will never get anywhere without those first, you know, without those first steps. What was that famous Chinese proverb? A journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, something like that. And so often I hear churches saying things like, well, we really need to get our own church in order before we can think about mission, before we can step out. Sorry, folks, you'll never get your own church completely in order. Start, just start with some small response to what's going on in your community, trusting in God for the leading and for the equipping and the strengthening, and then just begin to watch what happens. And then the final part of that, Martin, they should report back to you and tell you, because we all need encouragement. We all need to hear from across the places, hey, look, we tried this and things are beginning to flow. And, you know, we encourage one another that way. In my previous life as a sales training officer, we always used to talk about the big case-itis, how people in selling would always go for that big case because if they can get the big case, then they've cracked it. Yeah. And they completely forget about the little people. Yeah. There's a, a great wee phrase, you'll know it, do not despise the day of small things. And, you know, during COVID, when so little was possible, I did a one-to-one online course, an, an alpha course, and if people are not sure about alpha, it's a, it's a way to introduce people to mm. the claims of the Christian faith. And uh, and we couldn't do groups, we couldn't meet and things like that. But this one guy I'd, I'd had contact with, and, and I sat in Zoom 
uh, in my house and he sat in Zoom in his, in his house and we went through it and some people might have said, that's not very good just your time, you know, just one person. Don't despise those small things. I mean, sure, you can hear about churches that have got 100 people coming to Alpha courses, but that one guy was worth my time. And the wonderful thing about that is he's now inquiring after becoming or entering into ministry himself, just out of that, taking some time with them online through the COVID pandemic. So small things are great and to be rejoiced in. I think about in my life, the number of people that just took the time to listen to me, all the stupidity that yeah. I was coming out with. Yeah. And believe me, there might have been quite a bit of stupidity, <laughs> but they listened yeah. and they encouraged. Yeah. They never judged me. You know, they just encouraged me. They most probably rolled their eyes in disdain after I left. But yeah, you know, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Just to listen and encourage. That's right. And surely people who are not just going to uh, oh, criticize, oh, you shouldn't have done that. People who understand you're, you're a beginner, you're learning and uh, who just are there to walk alongside with you and encouragers. The world will never have a problem with too many encouragers, you know, so step up, step up those who can just say a word in season that will help someone along. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I said at the top end of the program, uh, we were going to talk about Church Without Walls ministry. We haven't. Uh, what does the moderator do? We haven't done that. How are you coping with the use of only one arm? We haven't done that. Wow. Yeah. What a podcast this has been. I said at the beginning, you know, we often go off on a, a different tangent. I think it's been so encouraging to hear what you've shared. Very briefly, though, before we move on to the final question, which is mm. uh, who your Christian hero is, Church Without Walls. Yeah. Very briefly tell me about that, because I think this can link into what we've been talking about on this podcast. So tell me more, please. Yeah, very much so. It really dates back to the turn of the millennium or thereabouts, and it was a major report that came to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, and it was titled Church Without Walls. And it was really a new vision for church. Bear in mind that we had been declining as a denomination, the Church of Scotland, since the mid-1950s at that point. Mm. Numerically, we had 1.4 million members out of a population of 5 million in Scotland, so very significant. I mean, that's a huge proportion of any population. But since 1955, every year, bar none, decline. And so at the end of the 90s there, some of our visionaries, some of, us are, some of our prophetic characters began to look and say, we need something different. We need a renewed vision for church. And it would pick up some of the things that, that I talked about. Church not being about everybody coming to us, but begin to ask, how can we take church beyond the walls? Therefore, yes. church without walls. In many ways, churches have become obsessed with buildings and holding on to buildings. And we wanted to say, it's not about the building. It's what is the people and not about the people in the church. But let's get out there where people are. Wasn't some great scientist who came up with this. It just seemed like this is what the gospel says. Can we begin to take it seriously again? And did we embrace it as a denomination? In part, but I think we're still doing so now because it's a major cultural shift in many ways. And those things don't happen, you know, within traditional denominations. They don't no. happen in a, a week or two or even a year or two. It takes time. But I can still see the fruit of that vision coming to bear now. Well, I'd love to talk about that in a future podcast, if, sure. if that's all right, if you wouldn't mind coming back. Yeah, sure. You know, I don't want to detract from what you shared already. Mm. It's been a phenomenal time of encouragement. And those that are listening at the moment, would like to get hold of you maybe to say, yes, I need some more news on Havala and how to yep. go about it. How can they contact you, good sir? Well, you find me on Facebook, uh, Martin Fair, that's for sure. And MD can just do a search for that. But 
I'm more than happy to uh, send over contact details and email address, Martin, and maybe you can put that in your your material and uh, I would have no problem at all with him um, to get in touch. Final question, if that's okay then. Yeah. I have no idea what your answer is going to be on this one. So, Martin Fair, mm. who is your Christian hero, please? <laughs> well, do you know, when you said that, my mind began to whir and I'm thinking about would it be one of the, you know, the great evangelists? Would it be somebody like Mother Teresa, you know, known, of course, for getting her hands dirty par excellence? I'm thinking, would it be one of the great apologists of recent years, like somebody like John Lennox, who just was ready to go into battle with the atheists and make a case for Christian faith? But, you know, what it boils down to is this. My heroes in Christian faith are the ordinary folks whose names will never be known. And I mean by that folks who were with me in my parish ministry, who actually made a huge difference and so I don't sort of even want to pick one name out. but Just one, just one. Just one. Just to fly the flag. Okay, I'll give you one name, Tracy, okay? Go for it. And that's that because, you know, you know that bit in the gospel when everybody condemns this woman for what she's done? She's, you know, a show of great love for Jesus and pouring out a perfume and they begin to say, oh gosh, that's uh, what, what a waste. And Jesus says, you know, wherever this gospel is preached in time to come, she'll be remembered. Yes. Actually, we don't know her name necessarily of all of the characters in scripture. Sometimes it's not people, you know, that got a name check as such. And I love that because this I do know, their names are written in the place that really matters, Book of Life. So the women who poured out the perfume, the Tracys, the ordinary folks, they're my heroes. Yeah. And this Tracy person, what made her really stand out for you? What did she do? Came to faith later in life, probably reluctantly, you would say, but goodness, what a difference it made in her life. And she was the key to the founding of the Havilah ministry. I mean, there have been others been coming to church for 60 or 70 years who had not necessarily connected or seen the fact that God was calling us to something more. And here was someone who was new to faith who got it, but who had a, you know, an energy about her and a, a willingness just to go for it and not to be put off even when waiting for a year when nobody came. So that kind of freshness of faith, big personality, and that commitment. Yeah. Hero, heroine, either way. What a way to end a program. Mm. To bookend from the start, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. When we talk about having a Tracy. Yeah. Well done to Tracy. Yeah. That is fantastic. And, of course, that encourages us as well because there'll be people going to church on a Sunday who might be in their 70s or yeah. 80s. And normally we discard them, but... Listen, yeah. you know, all throughout the rest of the world, yeah. there are countries whereby the older you are, the wiser you are, therefore we listen to you, but not over here. No, well, do you know what? And it took a, a lady in her oncoming years. I know we're finishing up, Martin, but there was a lady who, another older lady still who volunteered in Havla. She kept doing that till she was about 90 years of age. For goodness sake, she should have retired. But so many of those broken people who came gravitated in her direction. She was like their granny. And she just sat in a corner and she listened and she cared. Her name was May. She's lost to us now. Uh, she's in glory now. But May, what a Christian saint. Right up, way past the P45, way past the retirement age, she was still serving. Wow. Wonderful. Amazing.
amazing. I thoroughly enjoyed this. We must get you back, Martin, because there's so many questions here that we would even touch upon. Yeah. Hopefully this podcast will encourage those. And if you are encouraged and you want to know more, please get in touch with us. My website will have my email address and I've already said it at the top end of the show as well. Martin Fair, thank you so much for joining today. It's been a real privilege. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure to be with you, Martin. And I do look forward to hope we get opportunity to talk again. I'm going to book you in. Trust me. Smashing. God bless. Smashing. Thanks. Bless you.